Before I begin, I want to acknowledge where I am situated, which is on the traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. To acknowledge this territory is to recognize its longer history, one predating the establishment of the earliest European colonies. It is also to acknowledge this territory's significance for the indigenous peoples who lived and continue to live upon it and whose practices and spiritualities were tied to the land and continue to develop in relationship to the territory and its other inhabitants today. I recognize my own history and how it places me in the structure that is still heavily influenced by colonialism. And as you listen to this series on Black experiences in Kingston, I hope that you place yourself on your land and acknowledge what it might feel like for non-settlers to navigate the systems in place. Welcome back to Kingston, the Black Experience. This is your host, Tiana Edwards, pronoun she, her. I'm excited to be here again. This is a special episode. I know I did a reflection and I polished off season one. This is not the beginning of season two. It's just a bonus episode um, in between seasons. So I'm proud to share that I successfully defended my master's project, which was this podcast included with um, a paper. And so that's done. And so now this podcast is just a podcast that is um, turned into a fun project that I want to continue, but no longer connected to my master's uh, work. So if you're wondering what the bonus episode is, I was asked um, to be a part of this year's Kingston Writers Fest. And I thought that um, this opportunity was really great. And I'm really grateful to the artistic director, R.M. McCulley, for continuously asking me back to be a part of Kingston Writers Fest to give you a bit of history for this year's theme. Um, share this note from Ara, um, a note on the theme which was Unbound. So um, in creating this theme of Unbound, uh, it was to shine a spotlight on written work that challenges the reader and the literary art form with trailblazing ideas, creative presentations, and playful structures. In addition to the great fiction, nonfiction, culinary, and poet poetry events you know and love, we've curated a series on graphic novels, spoken word, storytelling, hybrid forms, and experimental work. So again, I want to thank Ara for inviting me to be a part of this year's um, event. It was it was an incredible experience, and it was an honor to be included. Um, with such a, an accomplished roster of, uh, of writers and creators. So thank you again. Um, so why does this relate to this podcast? Well, I had the opportunity to moderate a discussion between two incredibly talented black women and poets, Britta Bedore or Britta B and Atonia Julianne Otekbitek. So Britta B, if you are unfamiliar, is born and raised in Kingston 
and is incredibly accomplished. She just launched her book, Wires That Sputter. It's available where you can find books and on Audible. I love listening uh, to authors read their books, so I love listening to books on Audible. And you'll see after you listen to this episode why you'd like to actually listen to uh, her book as well. And, you know, spoken word artist is just the best way to receive a book um, by a spoken word artist. And the other author that I got to interview and moderate discussion through, Atonia, um, was promoting her latest book, Song and Dread, which includes reflections um, through the height of the pandemic. And Atonia is just incredible. Um, she also goes by Julianne. So uh, I actually worked down the hallway from Julianne this summer in Black Studies. Uh, she's a prof at Queen's. And um, I just think she's such a wonderful person. So I was very excited to have this conversation. Um, what I'm sharing with you right now is actually uh, live. It's a live recording from the session on Saturday, September 30th, 2023. And I want to thank the team, um, Wilding, um, as well as Tessa Vesquez, who um, made sure that this was recorded and sent the recording to me. So thank you to the whole team at Kingston Writers Fest um, and specifically to my um, author patron, uh, Jan Allen, who, who uh, sponsored my, my participation in Saturday. And without further ado, enjoy this special episode of Kingston the Black Experience. And now it's my pleasure to introduce Tiana Edwards. Um, many Kingstonians first got to know Tiana through a blog post she wrote in May 2020, following the murder of George Floyd. Her statement, Kingston has a notorious issue with race, came, I suspect, as news to some, but it also launched a number of really important conversations. Race and culture are central topics in Tiana's academic life too. She created the podcast, Kingston, The Black Experience, as part of her work towards a master's degree in cultural studies at Queen's University, which she just successfully defended last week. So, and, you know, these, these topics are also really central to her professional life, um, where she, she works at, Queen, at um, Queen's University as the Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Coordinator at Yellow House. So please welcome Tiana Edwards. Okay, <laughs> thank you all so much uh, for being here. It's an honor to share space with these two incredible poets, uh, women. Just, I'm just completely overwhelmed um, by how today will go. So yeah, I'm gonna do a quick uh, rundown of what today will look like. Uh, first by giving you a bit more details on myself and how you will find the conversation today. And then I will allow uh, Tonya and Britta to introduce themselves. And then we'll kind of go into the conversation. I only have a question for each of them. Like there's one question. One question for the first chunk, a reading for each, 
another question, a reading for each, and then some space at the end for, for some Q&A. So we're going to just leave like lots of space for discussion and back and forth so that we don't feel too tight in this uh, very quick hour. Um, so yeah, I, I'm Tiana Edwards, and I am recording this um, as a special episode for Kings of the Black Experience. <laughs> so let's just leverage every opportunity. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be here and to talk about, you know, the beautiful work in both of these books um, and, and experiences. And I mean, we called it Kings of the Black Experience or today's talk, but it's more than that, right? Like we all are all black women up here, but we're gonna talk about the incredible work and what it looks like to create in this space. So again, thank you uh, for being here. And I really hope that you enjoy today as much as I am enjoying it right in this moment. We haven't even gotten into it. I'm already just, I'm already just so um, beaming with, with joy. So I'm going to hand it over uh, to Britta if you want to give yourself a really awesome introduction to, to today and, and being here. Kingston! Good day, good afternoon. My name is Britta, Britta Bedore. I go by Britta B. Yeah, you know me. I am a spoken word performer and poet and professor putting it on for my hometown, Kingston. I am based in Toronto now, and it feels good to be home, and it also feels difficult to be home. And uh, another attribute that I'd like to acknowledge at this time is my family. My family's in the building right now, and I feel really supported and so loved um, for the people who show up in my life. And I've been so fortunate to have so many glimpses of just resounding, uh, I guess, for lack for a better word right now, energy and love in my life. And all of this that I do, everything that I create, everything that I try to contribute and be a part of in the conversation and relationship to the world is to make my family proud. So I want to just give mad love to my dad, my brother, and my aunt who are in the building right now. Hi, mine is not going to be so spirited. <laughs> <laughs> I am not a spoken word artist. <laughs> everyday page poet. Um, my name is Otonia Julianne Okodbitek. Most of you, well, some of you may know me as Julianne, but Otonia is my actual name, and it's the name that I use for my creative work. Um, so I go by both names. Um, I'm a poet, uh, moved to Kingston in 2021. It was very cold and very white. <laughs> But, I mean, it was literally white, just the snow and all of that kind of thing, but also lots and lots of white people. Um, it, yeah, but all the stores and windows had Black Lives Matter, and I was thinking, where are they? Um, but <laughs> they mattered. Um, and so that was good to see. But now, there are no stores that have Black Lives Matter, so it's been interesting to see that. Um, I work at King, uh, no, not Kingston, Queen's University, uh, joint appointed in English department and gender studies, and I am an assistant professor of black creativity. So I'm really happy to be here. And thank you for, for um, Ara and the folks at the Kingston Writers Festival for organizing me to have been such fantastic company. Thank you. 
Julianne's always keeping it real. And that's mm. a perfect segue to the first discussion, which um, if you've had the pleasure of reading through these amazing books of poetry, you've probably seen the theme that I've seen, which is honesty and authenticity. And that is something that's really hard to be in this world, I think, especially right now in 2023. So I kind of want to talk about that with both of you, um, about what it feels like to be so honest with yourselves and then to put that on paper and to have people read such honesty and authenticity. And is it challenging or is it easy? What does that look like for you? I think for a lot of us in the category of minority, we have no choice but to show evidence. And that evidence comes from our perceptions and experience of truth and as well as what we would like to seek in our truth. So what is it that we're not seeing represented or dignified or perhaps even acknowledged in our lives and in our experiences? And how do we get there? For me as a poet, I first came to the page because I didn't know how to say what was going on internally for me out loud and there was some inner voice about me that said well if you can't write it down or sorry if you can't say it out loud write it down and it was a way for me as we talked a little bit earlier to record what was happening and I would be able to in a way be able to be accountable for how I was feeling and thinking and perceiving the world but then I would also be able to be rebellious and resistant against what I was thinking and feeling and experiencing in my relationship to the world. So in my writing practice, what it means to be honest and authentic, I think, is a matter of looking at how to confront yourself, hold a mirror to others, um, perhaps even be honestly influenced by the things that sound and look and feel like and unlike you, and use that as a template for getting your voice up and out. Thank you. I feel so much reflection in that because I think, I mean, as you so beautifully opened on that post uh, Black and Kingston from what feels like a long time ago. It was only three years ago. And your reflection on like seeing Black Lives Matter then and then not seeing it now. Um, writing it down does feel good. And then looking back on it, it's almost like a reminder to yourself, right? Like you can read through your whole book and remind yourself on how you felt. You can't repress those memories if you've documented them. Um, so that's really beautiful. Um, and perhaps it's a bit of healing too. Yeah. I have this ideal about poetry that once I can put it into a poem, then I'm done with it. <laughs> it's an ideal, but um, yeah, right? <laughs> like once I push it out, you know, then I don't have to deal with it anymore. But I think in healing, what we may need to do a better job at educating and helping each other with is that, you know, we have the whole cliche of like healing is a journey and not a destination, but healing is also a matter of you know those little steps 
those little daily steps you take day by day and maybe it's, there's a little bit of a memento factor into it where you have these poems or you have these stories or you have these blogs it's like here's all the shit that i've been through mm-hmm. now how do i leverage it and like evolve from it yeah absolutely and now looking at your work julianne specifically song and dread and you know i told you as i was reading the poems how it took me back to definitely covid memories that i had repressed deeply repressed um and so what that brought up for me and what that has felt like to you to speak so honestly then put it in paper and now yeah reflect on it okay thanks um thanks for your answer tiana because i hadn't thought about authenticity in that way um but to speak to to song and dread a song and dread was came out this march and um but it's a book that i was i wrote during 2020 and i was wanting to document, um, to write a poem in response to a news, something in the news, right? Um, and so much of this, I, I promise, most of us have forgotten. Even I had forgotten it, right? So when, when I was editing, I was like, oh yeah, this happened. Oh yeah, that happened. But to speak to the idea of uh, authenticity, it was about listening and writing a poem to the truth of the news, whatever that means. That's almost like an oxymoron, right? The truth of the news. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but what, trying to see what was behind um, that news. And, and, and I started to write it, uh, a series of poems called Pi Day Poems, which um, I started on, on March the 14th. Um, those of us who are Pi people know about Pi Days, right? March the 14th, International Pi Day. Um, so there's a series of Pi Day poems <laughs> in this, and uh, I wanted to to take note, to mark. And so, if it's if I to tack authenticity to it, I would say this is this is what we were thinking about. This is what we were truly thinking about in those days. Um, but the sense about um, being an authentic person—that's uh, not me. I'm never authentic. I'm just because there's so many selves to me, like uh, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um <coughs> Say when I'm at work, I try not to be too very silly. But when I'm not at work, <sighs> anything goes right. So, uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, uh, there's no authenticity. Sorry. I mean, no, but I mean, I mean, how ironically authentic was that answer? <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're like, you know, you're being. I mean, I, I guess there's different definitions of authenticity, but in my mind, authenticity is also just transparency. Okay, and like that's good. You, you saying, like, I am this silly person, or I'm trying not to be this silly person, which I feel like we've had a lot of laughs. We worked down the hall from each other this summer, just for context. Julia and I were just always showing up to work wearing the same thing for some reason. And I almost um, wore an only t-shirt thing today. I, I almost did. Yeah. Twinning every every day. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you're giving yourself enough credit, Julianne. I think you are. Y- I feel authenticity from you day to day, and I feel authenticity from you reading your work. I mean, you're saying things that are so real and that many people wouldn't want to say, and you find also, like, this thread of, of humor, right? Like, you said, like, extra like Toronto in that one poem, which, like, had me howling. Extra like Toronto. That's so funny. Um, also real. So, yeah, I just... <laughs> I just think you do a beautiful job of, of being authentic. And, and with my definition, that means being transparent and true to who you are, which means that, yeah, sometimes you are serious queens, Julianne, and sometimes you're silly Julianne. Um, and so with that, this is a, a segue, uh, both an opportunity for both of your readings. Um, I think we decided who do, who wants to go first. Yeah, I can begin. Yeah, lovely. The first piece that I'm going to share, I'm going to do an excerpt of 
one poem and then I'll dig into a second poem. So the first piece that I'm sharing with the excerpt is titled Black Balance. And this is a really special poem because I was commissioned to to compose a poem on behalf of the Black Portraitures Conference, which was held in 2021 at the Agnes Etherington Art Center here. And it's the first time that my hometown has then uh, invited me to create something representative of both my hometown and my black experience. So I'm gonna begin with this and then I'll dig into a second piece called, Is That How You Really Feel? And the context to this poem is that <laughs> I, I was commissioned, my first ever commissioned poem um, was from a group of like a branding agency or something. They needed me to write a poem and they're like, be honest, be truthful about how you view the world right now, everything going on. And I came to them with this poem and they started to censor it. They started to tell me to take <laughs> different lines from it out. And um, I, of course, was resistant to it. And uh, then they had the audacity to ask me, well, is that how you really feel? <laughs> so here we go, black balance. I am only a portrait when they practice their aquarium eyes on my blackness. I might have spoke, but the shutters flash froze my mouth. I am not the thought that counts. And the betrayal is not that I stick out like a windswept umbrella, but that I appear invisible. Had I been born with all my tongues, I might have been preoccupied with the warmth of some banality. I might have stopped to gaze the clouds or found a prophet I could take for granted. But I leap across the page, the wall, the room, the globe, and somehow I am only the barrier they build upon me. Is this blackness too much? Is this blackness real? When I have attended their tables, I might have fractured the ceiling with my lack of regard for their heel print of dominance. Why aim skyward when what is hidden and ancient within me is the will to live wide? I funnel my fury that lives within the voice within me, feel its roar finding traction, like the wingspan of a railroad, zipping the cleavage of a quarantined city to puncture this portrait, to bloom what is alive in me unspoken. I must interfere with wonder. Had I had my ancestors been given today's future, who might I have been? Wow. <laughs> Is that how you really feel? Yes. It's really weird to stand on guard before a flag that didn't ask for me. If Jeff Bezos can make a thousand billion dollars, I want all dollars discontinued. I want a national anthem written by Fifi Dobson. I want national anthems banned. There's a maker there. <laughs> Some ass ask too much, like legalization of unadulterated cocaine bought fair trade behind 
counters and drug marts. I want more than one black prof, more than one black chance, more than one black prime minister, more than one black time of year, more than one black, more than one black, more than one black, more than one black, black, more than one black, more than one black, black, more than one black, more than one black, more than one black, more than one black. More than one black, more than one black, black. More than one black, more than one black. More than one black, more than one black. More than one black. Ooh. Thank you. Now I'm going to take you all the way to the other side of the world. But it's, it's uh, close enough to Kingston that we'll all recognize this. Um, I'm taking you to 2020, whatever day 34 was from March the 14th. So this is Pi Day 34. We are far enough inside this thing to remember when it was passed on through travel. We're also far enough in to recall days when it was clear that travelers were vectors. It wasn't that long before it became clear that local transmission was a thing, and then nursing homes and then crowd restrictions, first 500, and then 50, and then clusters, and then daily updates by politicians and top doctors and graphs that read exponentially and figures that passed out local and international transmission, and then border shutdowns and interprovincial shutdowns, and finally lockdown. So the authorities in Guangzhou count, as we do, local and international transmissions and one of the 111 Africans tested, 19 were imported cases, the report states. And having largely stamped out in-country transmission of the coronavirus, authorities are worried that one of the biggest risks of a second wave in the epidemic stems from infected people coming from abroad, the report further states. In the meantime, just to be safe, a video shared on social media focuses on a notice taken from a McDonald's restaurant in Guangzhou. We've been informed that from now on, black people are not allowed to enter the restaurant. The restaurant has apologized, stating that the ban on black people was not representative of our inclusive values. Immediately upon learning of an unauthorized communication to our guests at a restaurant in Guangzhou, we immediately closed down the restaurant. The restaurant added that it had conducted diversity and inclusion training in the branch. <laughs> Keeping it real. <laughs> I'll be bringing it I'll down every time. No, it's okay. You know, life is a roller coaster. This this conversation will go up and down, and I think that like that's that's part of the 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 realness and the authenticity, right? It's like we are here representing all the ways that we show up and what that looks like, and it's not a monolith, absolutely. And blackness is not a monolith, and that's that's something that we talk about in the podcast. 
um, yeah, so so thank you both for sharing. I really want an opportunity really for you to read your works as well because I think it provides such a context for for you both um, and places your work in such a beautiful way as we kind of like wind in and out of this discussion. And so the next um, question that I had for both of you that you both uh, were had an opportunity to reflect on before today was about how your environment influences your work. I mean, like this this session is, you know, about Kingston blackness, but of course, like we all arrive here in different ways and something that comes up a lot in the podcast, Kingston, the black experience, shameless plug, is that, um, <laughs> you know, white supremacy is like a, is like a global, it's more than global. It's like a world thing, right? It's going to show up anywhere you are. It doesn't matter if you're in Kingston. It doesn't matter what space you're in. You could be in a room full of black people and like the a country full of black and brown people and still be facing white supremacy right <laughs> it's not it's not just kingston um and so i just i was interested to know how your environment informs your work um you know Brittany, you don't live in kingston you live in you live in toronto and julianne you talked about moving here and you your environment really is like the covid environment in your book and so i kind of just want to talk through that and um and that will ramp us up to our, our next readings and so who would like to go first <laughs> My job is to bring it down. <laughs> so we'll go back up with Britta, and then we'll <laughs> Julian will drop us on our butts. Yeah. <laughs> with this particular collection, I really tried to not write about the things that I always write about, which I feel is my home. And that means family, that means location, that means memories here in Kingston, but it's inevitable to write from that place because it's where I come from. Um, to note on my environment growing up here, as someone that was really interested in poetry from an age where I didn't even know the word for it yet, um, like I remember one of the first things that I wrote was a letter to a friend who moved away when I was like five years old. And I remember it was like this secret way to talk to them, even though I didn't know where they moved and they would never get the letter or whatever. I just hoped that one day I would see them again and I would have all these little letters that I could give them and say, look, I never forgot about you. And then moving into elementary school where my grade five teacher, Mrs. Hefford, uh, writes the word poetry on the chalkboard and starts telling us about how poets think in these emotive and figurative ways. And it's not exactly like storytelling, even though you're telling a story, it just might be that the way you t share your story is not in like an A to B process. And when my teacher was explaining this, that's when it clicked with me. I realized, oh, that's what I'm doing. I have a name for it now. And this is where I grew up. Like this is, I can't be a poet without attaching my environment to my identity. Unfortunately though, in school, I was not shown black writers. I was not shown black poets. I was not shown black performers and black artists. I didn't get what I needed in that sense to see what was possible for me, to be able to have permission for myself as a thinker that writes this way and creates this way to see how I can push what it means to be a traditional poet. 
I didn't get any of that until YouTube came out. And with the internet, I was able to look at other black and brown skinned performers and poets stretching and pushing the boundaries and the possibilities of what poetry can look and feel like. I saw Def Jam poets, I saw uh, spoken word poets, I saw dub poets, and this, what this is what taught me how to be earnest in my storytelling because there's something about the music of spoken word and the meaning of language that I feel really rooted in. Now, how do I, with my voice, bring this out? Excuse me. How do I bring this out? Um, and I, I, I think that in terms of environment, how it shows up in my work, it's really a matter of me still being tapped into the, the wires of my mind and the framework of my foundation. Um, and, and, and then now maybe giving it a new image or a new sound or a new way to feel about it. That's beautiful. Do you picture yourself as like a gift to yourself and like your young self? Like I see you as a gift to me, honestly, because, you know, I don't want to get emotional. To see your work, it validates me. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I'm going to leave that there. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I'll hold that. Uh, here we are. Here we are crying. Um, <laughs> okay. Same, same for you, Juliet. Environment. Finish our conversation, then we'll go into. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been awake since three thirty, so I have half a brain on. Um, the question was about environment. Okay, how 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 our environment shapes how the way we write. For me, I think it's always been a bit complicated. I, in my head, it's been complicated anyway. Maybe it's actually not. That I was born to exiled parents in Kenya, but my parents are from Uganda. And I've lived in the United States and in Canada. And in Canada, I've lived in Vancouver and now here. And so the idea of environment, I've always thought of it as literally land. But having always been a foreigner my whole life, it's, 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 I've always felt like I'm almost landing, but not quite there. So I feel like um, I'm floating around. So, uh, and I guess I, I give myself the permission to observe since I'm not here, since I can't be here because I've not landed, because I'm not of this place and I'm never ever going to be of this place, right? So I'm always just noticing and listening and looking out. So writing poetry becomes a essential affair. What can I hear? What can I touch? What can I smell? That kind of thing. What do I want to remember? And most of it is infused with memory because that's what's real. Place is often not real, but memory is more real for me. Um, unlike you, I was I was born the daughter of a poet, so I knew that there were black poets. I knew they existed, um, but I knew right from the beginning, <laughs> from the beginning. When did I not know that poetry was a dangerous affair? Because my dad was exiled for it, so it was not something that people did because they were feeling emotional or because they had a broken heart. It was something that could get people in trouble. And when I initially wanted, told my mom. I want to be a poet. She told me to get a real, to get a real job. <laughs> poet. <laughs> I guess having been married to a poet for a long time and having to pay the bills and all of that, um, she did not want me to be a poet. <laughs> 
I think that's a really good prop right there, what you said. It was something to get you in trouble. There's a lot of ways in with that. And to look at poetry as protest and, um, you know, um, to challenge the oppressors um, and how that can get you into trouble. It could be a threat to your life or the quality of your life of course, and the quality of your family and people associated and affiliated with you, I think that's a really powerful place to look at our language, maybe. maybe. And I, I often what think that about Dion Brand's idea that um, a novel, uh, the reader will interrogate a novel, but the poetry will inter interrogate the reader. Yeah. So then um, when you're the poet writing, sometimes it's interrogating you as you're writing it, right? But for me, then it's the the craft of creating an environment for which people can feel whatever it is they're going to feel. Amazing! Thank you, thank you. Okay, we are at one thirty-four, so I think there's time for yeah to a reading more from each of you, and then we can move into. Can I have a special request? Yeah. Can I ask you to read something? Yeah. yeah. After you read your yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, yeah. I can read it now. Yeah. After you read your thing, that 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 um, the wires that spot up helps. page two, or maybe the whole thing. It yeah. Just, I just want to hear your voice in it. It's so good. It's so so good. Oh, wonderful. Okay, so in this collection of poetry, there's some interesting use of punctuation, I would say, and I'm really looking for what is my style aesthetic as well as my rhythm, always. So let's practice that. This is page two, so I'm, I'm diving in. The fractures of a family who stands it together, the sporadic spell, a piercing memory of what was not meaning. If you reach one lifetime elsewhere, if you expect better for one else, you double is fuel for self-grasping. The performance of painlessness has failed your, your family. You are a product and a people. You must personify hidden glaciers to break the fever, to dismantle its gray legacy. Your notebook of names for ancestors, for painters, experts, and self-selected kin. There are new daydreams and lyrics to collect. You keep across the page. Despite between you and hard listening is stolen territory, is grammar, is headquarters, is a world not made, the world you perplex, is celebrating, and maybe sometimes someplace you don't have to keep affirmations. Some place not programmed by empires. Some place you recognize an abolished hierarchy, a diluted fear. No recessive and abusive patterns to taste you. Until then, this current, this constitution, swaggers, digs debt. This grammar needs numbers. This cosmetic code, cologne, and all-inclusive vacations. This graffiti, this gravity of extraordinary suffering, this desire to misunderstand suffering, to cover the stench, bottled listening. Sometimes it asks you to speak on behalf, 
Preservation is not wanting to bother, is not wanting to be bothered, is not tempted to volley weapons in all directions the way a flower petal grows. Your intelligible slant and slang here is you, is trinket of choosing, is not going back to serving the way they scripted you. Kai Kilo doesn't even know. <laughs> Thank you so much for reading that. Do you want to read your, whatever you were planning to read anyway? I'm, I'm happy with that. Thank you. Yeah, continue. Continue. Pass Everybody, here's a downer. Okay. <laughs> um, Pi Day 47. Uh, does it need an introduction? These are the Pi Days. Uh, no punctuation. Uh, just to say, when I wrote 100 Days, which was my first book, the editor was asking me about the use of punctuation in the one poem. And I said, oh, well, don't you know? Well, you know, the rules are. And he said, you don't need punctuation. <laughs> I said, really? He said, yeah. So we wrote the whole book without punctuation. And after that, I just don't care. I just don't care. <laughs> so um, in this book, I didn't bother with punctuation either. So yes. here we are. Um, but I don't know what the reader is going to do, but I just, I just couldn't be asked anymore. Um, <laughs> since I don't have to, right? And they still published it. Um, <laughs> Pi Day 47. She stopped, work she stopped work last Monday at a Toronto long-term care center. By Friday, she died at home alone. She stopped work last Monday at a Toronto long-term care center. By Friday, she died at home alone. She stopped work last Monday at a Toronto long-term care center. By Friday, she died at home alone. She stopped work last Monday at a Toronto long-term care center. By Friday, she died at home alone. She stopped work last Monday at a Toronto long-term care center. By Friday, she died at home alone. She stopped work last Monday at a Toronto long-term care center. By Friday, she died at home alone. She stopped work last Monday at a Toronto long-term care center. By Friday, she died at home alone. 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 It's probably the only thing that most of us will ever know about Sharon Roberts, a personal support worker at the Downsview Long-Term Care Center who died of this thing in Toronto on the 1st of May. Mm. Mm. Thank you. And I think just the importance of archival and memorial and having her name in your book is so profound. So Yeah, I wanted to honor all those women. They were mostly women. Um, all those people who were, um, first, <coughs> first we thought we called them essential care workers and we beat pots and pans for them and we had signs on the grocery stores with, we love you, we thank you, and all of that. 
And then before you know it, we were same humans protesting against them. And I have a poem in here about a doctor who went to the bank and uh, he was refused service because he was a healthcare worker. So yes, the importance of paying attention to our environment. Mm. Yes. Thank you. Okay. I was going to ask one more question, but I think let's leave some space because I know that there's folks who have questions in the audience. So thank you both. I'm going to try to talk less and give space for folks who have more questions, but I appreciate you both for being here today. This was incredible. Thank you, Brita B. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Um, can I do a shameless plug? Yeah, yeah let's do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it Let them know. Yeah. Please do. Both Rita B. and me and uh, D.M. Bradford are going to be launching our books, uh, these two and one more, Bottom Rail on Top, at the Agnes Everington Center for the Arts on November the 9th. Yes. So it yes. will be called. Please come out. We'll have poetry. We'll have up poetry and down poetry <laughs> and, and the beautiful <laughs> work of D.M. Bradford. <laughs> yes, November 9th. Put it in your calendars. Save the dates. Tell your people to tell their people. We'll be back. Yeah, wonderful. Any questions? Or comments. Or comments, yeah. Yeah. We're going to a microphone for you. Oh, no, not the lights. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a question, actually, I just thought of for both of you when you talked about punctuation and then the reading of your work out loud. I'm sure in, in, in if you're, when you're using... I'll use the word non-conventional forms of punctuation, which often then we use to read something out loud. It tells us when to breathe or when to stop. Mm -hmm. Could your works then take on different meaning depending on where um, the punctuation changes? I'm thinking more, Britt, with you, because as a spoken word artist, if you read it one way and break here, and then use it to speak, uh, do it a different way and speak there. So things could really change just by having that part of it. Has that been your experience? Do when you're reading your poetry with the, um, <laughs> I don't know what to call it, alternative punctuation or non-punctuation or whatever, do you find then it's like, oh, this could mean something totally different if I read it like this? Totally. I mean, that's the trouble with poetry. Is it's that also the trouble with punctuation? <laughs> and the it's the trouble with punctuation. <laughs> so I mean, I'm gonna be giving a workshop later today at 3:30, I believe, and we're gonna talk about line breaks because line breaks is also punctuation, and you as the reader are the interpreter. You bring together what your experience and knowledge of language is to the page and you have the right and the freedom to read the work aloud in whichever way suits and best interests you so when we give you our work of course we have our intentions and our loves and our darlings and everything but now the work is yours all poetry in any form is meant to be read aloud and that's something that i wish i knew like years and years ago. I just thought I was supposed to read it in my head and that was it. But no, you need to speak it and read it out loud to understand its sense in the sound, not just its sense and meaning in the language. 
But what happens when the language rubs up against itself? And there's some really interesting things that happen there when you slow it down, you speed it up, or you put a different inflection or pronunciation on the work, or when you break, or when you pause. There's some really interesting stuff that happens there, much like when you read a script. You bring your knowledge and your interests and your experience to the page. Same thing with poetry. Now, a lot of us think that we have to get it. We have to understand the poem. Let's um, push that to the side when we engage with a new author's work or a book that you haven't picked up because I think what is more important is to just notice what you experience from the work. Okay. I, I'm, I'm going to take that and keep going. Um, when I've been writing poetry for a long time and I totally appreciate the origins and the contemporary practice of oral poetry and the what we do when we're reading it out loud so that people can remember it and so that maybe people can go and repeat it. And, uh, and so we need repetition, we need rhythm, we need all those kinds of mnemonics so that people can remember really what we're, we're trying to do. Um, and I remember spending a long time watching uh, spoken word poets to teach me how to read poetry because I mostly used to read, uh, write on the page and then forget about it. I, I didn't have, I wasn't asked to read it out loud. But then I, I had to learn to read it out loud by watching the New Yorican poets and all mm. that, right? That, yeah. Um, and oh my God, they're so good. Uh, and also attending spoken word events in Vancouver. Um, uh, and then you, poetry becomes also not just something that is said, it's also something that is felt in the body. So sometimes you see people moving and sometimes people dance, sometimes people put it to music, right? And it becomes a song. Um, but I was also thinking about uh, poetry as a visual medium because we read it now, a lot of us read it, and a lot of us don't have the opportunity to have the poet read it for us or hear it in the poet's voice. Um, last two weeks ago, we were doing a poem in class called, by Ilya Kaminsky called, We Lived Happily During the War. It's a very powerful poem from his book, Deaf Republic, but when you hear him reading it, it's something else altogether. It's like two poems now, right? Uh, Ilya Kaminsky is a um, Ukrainian-American poet, and he's deaf, right? And so to hear a deaf poet reading the poem, he's, the way he breaks, the way he slows down and all that is not what you'd expect when you read a poem. But uh, where I was going to take this is to um, uh, the visuality of poetry. See, the last poem I read for you, I didn't read all of uh, She Died at Home Alone. I, I gave you all a break, right? Um, but <laughs> it's because I wanted it to appear also as visually when you look at it and you think, oh my gosh, she died at home alone. Because if I said it once, it's not enough. I want you to see that there are many lines that say she died at home alone, right? Um, in my last book, Afo is for a chole. <laughs> Run nonsense. Um, in my last book, A is for a chole, I was thinking about poetry as also a space for um, confronting other poisonous texts that we've grown up with. And I'm thinking about um, um, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, a uh, text that bothered me for a long time. This one saying that the haunting sometimes doesn't disappear even if you keep, even if you keep writing poetry about it. So what I did was um, take out all the words, or most of the words on this one page, and I left in the punctuation. So, and that's a poem, well, because they accepted it as a poem, well, what are you gonna do, right? Um, <laughs> um, it cannot be read out loud, 
But you who's looking at it, you're aware that there's something what's spoken on the page that you can't get, right? So I just want to think about poetry as an oral form, but also as a visual form. I love both of your answers so much. I love the I love their permission to interpret things because even I mean having read both of your works and then having you both read them, it's funny like to align with some of the ways that like you said bands that make her dance. Like that's exactly how I read that <laughs> when I was reading it. So I was like, yes. Um, and then the way that you like the cadence. I feel like because there's no punctuation, some of your stuff I kind of like rushed through. Like I rushed through reading it. Like I felt like this like need to to move faster for some reason not pause yeah Yeah. don't want to stay past that so yeah yeah so i felt that that was deliberate um but hearing you read it at your cadence too was was really beautiful so thank you for that thank you for that question that was a really awesome question we still have time for another question question. or comment or comment yes yes (laughs) do i see a hand up Oh, got a mic for you. Oh, sorry. Thank you. Um, my question's uh, for Britta. When you, uh, at the beginning, you said that when you were commissioned to do a piece and then they started to take it apart and they were asking you, like, almost like, censor this or can we take that? What are some examples of what they were asking you to, to remove from your poem? Mm-hmm. So, let me see what I've kept. Actually, I think I took it out of the book. Um, the poem had a line in it. Um, oh, one line was, um, I mean, okay, I kind of have to give you a little bit of what's happening in the piece. I'm addressing how leaders of our country um don't provide access to first nations don't provide water clean water to first nations and what does it mean to perpetuate the stigma of mental health what does it mean to um uh uh like acknowledge anti-black racism when a ceo of an arts organization who is an older white woman came up to me. I didn't even know she came up to me. She came up and put her hands in my hair and we were at a public event. I can't retaliate. (laughs) Um, I don't know if retaliate is the right word, but I can't react properly, right? Uh, I have to perform my reaction. And so um, there was stuff like that happening and it, it comes to this point where I say, oh, Canada, Scamida, I just don't see myself reflected in your flag. And they wanted me to take that out. Um, like, that was, like, the least <laughs> of our worries. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so, like, things where it would offend political leaders. Um because I need to be making people who oppress and discriminate me more comfortable. Is what they wanted me to do. Right. And they didn't want to pay me. So 
There was that on top of that on top of that. <laughs> Layers. Layers. <laughs> levels. But yeah. You live, thank you, you learn. Thank <laughs> Yeah, thank you for sharing. That's too much for me, honey. That was a lot. That. Yeah. <laughs> 2020, too. It was yeah. 2020. Yeah. Like, yo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where, what are we doing? What are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think we have time for one more question. Or comment. <laughs> no. Ugly. Yeah, they did not pay me. The question was, did they pay me? No. However, I think um, I think something that's important for emerging artists to know is that there's a little bit of, you know, you pay your dues to get exposure and to build your audience. There's a little bit of that. If you're ever feeling intuitively that you're in a position where you're you being used or taken advantage of, um, you're like a mouthpiece or you are another tick on a box. Tokenized, yeah. yeah, you're tokenized. Um, I think you got to listen to that gut instinct and not play with that fire. It's not worth it. You'll exhaust yourself from it. Um, that was a that was like one of those things, a morsel of me learning something from that experience that I, I wouldn't ever have to be in that position again. Um, yeah. And, you know, payment is not only as we as we know, like it's not only in terms of money compensation, but opportunities um, for some kind of like health care or child care or some other like photography and videography of your work like. There's other ways to compensate artists for their time and their contributions to helping you get more shine. So I think there are really creative ways to think about that. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's really well put. And I think sometimes it's like not to forget your own worth, right? And sometimes it can be framed as like, this is an opportunity for you. I'm helping you. And sometimes you have to like push that back and be like, why are you asking me? Because is it not because I'm going to bring value to you? Yeah. And so pay me. <laughs> pay <laughs> me. And don't leave it on the artist to be like, don't say, don't tell the artist, oh, what is your rate? Just tell them what your budget is yes. because it saves us the time. It also saves us the hassle of chasing you. It's a mess out here. So just be upfront, be transparent, <laughs> say what you Rihanna can give. With you. <laughs> Britta better have my money. <laughs> I love that. Okay, amazing. <laughs> I think <laughs> we have four more minutes left. If there aren't any other questions, I kind of, I mean, I had another question comment about the layers of balance in both of your works, right? Like, I think you both oscillate between gratitude, dread, happiness, joy, sadness. And you do it so beautifully. Like, and sometimes even through one poem, you're like, profoundly sad. And then, like, you are, you know, you'll make like a little quip. It's like, oh, that was funny. Am I sad? And you know, and you do the same thing where you kind of like bring this like quirky level to like some very deep, profound work. So, I guess my question really is on both of you: how you find that balance um, in both of your writing? I think it's a work in progress to find the balance. But I know in my earlier stages of writing, I was always trying to leave my audience on a feeling of resolve. Mm -hmm. So if I brought a deep sense of pain 
um, and, you know, things that might be triggering or um, uh, unpacking things that leave people feeling a more dysfunctional or deconstructive way. I wanted the piece to give hope or give a bit of, I guess, perspective on it. And nowadays, I look at the poem as I don't have to give all those answers. You can do the work. <laughs> also, I could be wrong. <laughs> so I think to balance it out is just a matter of who you are. It's not about like who you are as a writer, or as a poet. It's like who you are as a person. Is is mindfulness and gratitude a part of your daily experience? And it will always show up in the work. I like that. Amazing. I really like that. Um, when I was writing A's for Acholi, I really did think about you take your reader to a traumatic space, you have to bring them back out, right? And mm -hmm. I was very conscious of that kind of thinking. But when I was writing Song and Dread, I figured we were all in it together. So I'm not traumatizing you. I'm just, <laughs> we were all in it together, right? You have to take it as it comes. But then um, buy it. It's a dreadful book. It's full of, <laughs> <laughs> it, is called <laughs> it is called Song and Dread. But then, um, it's not all of it is Pi Day poems. I want to say that there's two halves of it. I had written, I had intended to keep writing a poem a day from Pi from Pi Day to to the next year Pi Day, or however long the pandemic lasts. And then after day 75, I was like, Ah, screw this! This is <laughs> this pandemic is never going to end. And then, which is also true. So then, the other half of the book, uh, much more palatable poems, okay? Buy it for that, too. <laughs> <laughs> Balance. Um, okay, well, on that note, thank you very much. We're, we're at the end of this um, session. Session. Yeah. <laughs> I also want to share, I think it's important for y'all to know that um, my book is also available in audio as well as an audio book. So you can, you know, aud Audible and Google and iTunes, they have, like, free books that they can give i suggest if you're able to to read the work before you hear it but if you just want to listen to it on the go or whatever that's cool too you can check it out in audio love that. I love did, you read, did you record it and i oh, did wow. it myself yeah audiobooks cost a lot of money so i got lucky <laughs> yes and i got paid <laughs> goes around comes around <laughs> Such excellent news to end on. Um, but also, thank you so much to Tiana for leading um, and inviting these people into conversation. And thank you, Britta and Julianne. Once again, my name is Tiana Edwards, your host of Kingston, The Black Experience. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I really appreciate you listening, and I look forward to you joining next time. If you're on Instagram, you can find me at Kingston Black Experience for the latest updates. Feel free to send me a DM there, or you can email me at 18tre at queensu.ca. Until next time, take care.